Welcome to Season 5 of American Political History, Rise of the Metropole, Coffee Houses. European, and before them Roman monarchs, for ages regularly measured themselves against the conquest of Alexander the Great, who had conquered the known world by age 29. The kings of England were no exception, often wondering to themselves about their own greatness in comparison. And within this aspiration, the monarchs of Europe as a whole would build a political culture with implicitly wished to dominate the world and exercise their very own Roman imperiums. England in the 17th century was being transformed from cultural backwater into a rival for the throne of world maritime power. England would merge its merchant commercial interests with its governmental military power, creating a mercantilistic system of government which would transform the way the world was oriented. In this process, they would form what would be called a metropole. The empire capital at London would become the political, economic, and cultural center of the soon-to-be world empire. What was in the first half of the 17th century, fledgling settlements in the far-off Americas, would become the daily business of both London's ports, factories, and seat of government at Whitehall. Control of this empire would remain within the English ruling class, but would now focus on the prosperity of both the genteel landlords and the merchant classes. But the political landscape in London was tumultuous at best. It was a combination of power from the Crown's officials trying to get away with what they politically thought they could obtain, and the powerful voices within the English coffee houses, where dissenting voices could not be suppressed by the crown's official authority without provoking violent dissent and hearkening back to flashbacks of the bloody English civil wars. These informal debates between coffee house and Whitehall would shape the formation of this burgeoning empire. Whitehall was layered, bureaucratic amalgamation, and at the top was, of course, the king and crown. This Existing system of bureaucracy suited a small island kingdom, but as the empire enlarged, it was painful for distant colonies to understand who was officially in charge of what topics and who was the decision-maker over those topics, and, sometimes more importantly, who was unofficially in charge of policy-making within the crown's government. The king who is facing the exponentially growing responsibilities of managing a multi-continent empire, was becoming more dependent on delegating day-to-day decisions to his most trusted advisors within the Privy Council. Delegating also allowed the king to give the power of decision-making to his favorites, but with this power came the potential of becoming the king's scapegoat if something went wrong. Oh dear me, that bad decision came from a rogue official making his own, own bad decision. Not the crown, my dear boy. The king kept for himself only the duties of handling foreign affairs with other countries. This was tightly handled by the crown who sought counsel from his most trusted advisors. This group of most trusted advisors, who officially never met at Whitehall, would become known as the Shadow Cabinet. The Shadow Cabinet included James, the Duke of York, the king's brother, who was Catholic, which barred him from officially holding office because of the Test Act of 1673, which was designed to deny any Roman Catholics from appointed English positions within the government. 
But by working within this shadow cabinet, the Duke of York became unofficially one of the most powerful men in England. Questioning why he was still working in government, unofficially, was one of the most dangerous accusations one could make in the English Empire. The Duke of York would voice the king's will with the policies of the Admiralty and then later the Committee on Foreign Plantations. He was also active dictating the king's approval over corporations and charters in Africa often directing who these corporations should place on their boards of trustees in order to get the king's approval. The other most powerful non-king figure in the English government was the High Lord Treasurer and Earl of Dansby. The Lord Treasurer directed all financial affairs of the crown. This was first done through his official role on the king's privy council and on his unofficial role as one of the king's most trusted advisors. The Lord Treasurer was also the king's public-facing financial representative, serving half-days on Wednesdays and Fridays at the Wallingford House in London where he would decide if the crown would redress public financial issues. Even the gentlemen and lords of England would take their petitions to the Lord Treasurer, where he sat for the elite on half-days on Tuesdays and Thursdays to hear the private petitions. Without an outlet within the bureaucracy for common people to have access to political levers of power, the coffee houses of London were the place for public discourse on politics, gossip, religion, and it was even the place for getting together and handling all sorts of business deals. All of the day's political topics and gossip was more vigorously debated in the coffee houses than in the chambers of any committee in Whitehall. Although England was a monarchy ruled directly by the crown, the opinion of the coffee houses constituted a real political force within the imperial politics. King Charles II was the Restoration monarch. The legacy of the English Civil War was still fresh. The population feared the king's conspiratorial recapturing of their rights of an Englishman that had been won through so much blood on the battlefield. The problem for the crown was that the coffee houses were a breeding ground for debate which was often just an excuse to openly be critical of Whitehall, the Privy Council, and occasionally the Crown itself. The Crown would first try to curtail the coffee houses in 1676 when the Privy Council proclaimed in a written pamphlet called The Character of the Coffee Houses and attempted to then clamp down on the coffee house culture itself. A poem would emerge from the coffee house as a rebuttal. Coffee and Commonwealth. Begin both with one letter. Both came in together for a reformation to make a free and sober nation. The common caste of the coffee house was mercantile Londoners whose fortune came from English trade. Although they constituted one-tenth of the entire empire's population, they were becoming the masters of most of the empire's financial capital. It was they whose ships and companies now manage most of the empire's worldwide trade network. It was they that had built and maintained most of the English merchant marine fleets. To the Crown's disapproval, debate in the coffee houses didn't shy away from any discussion, even topics the Crown thought forbidden. Despite the Crown's clampdown on coffee houses through legislation, the coffee houses continued to dissent in writings and speeches. Even the Earl of Shaftesbury, the opposition party leader in Parliament, he was arguing against the growing arbitrary administration of privy council and the consolidation of executive power by surplanting traditional parliamentary responsibilities. Only 
A new parliamentary election can save England from King Charles II's consolidation of power into the hands of the monarchy. It is the traditional liberty of Parliament that saves us, the English, from the whims of the conspiracy of King Louis of France and the Duke of Catholicism himself. The last one is a shot at the Duke of York. The public's fear of Catholic conspiracy in the Crown's Catholic family members would become poems recited in the coffee houses. But can't thou divine when things will be mended? When the reign of the line of the Stuarts has ended. The Earl of Shaftesbury based many of his arguments on the writing from Benjamin Harris, who was living in Boston, so that he had more freedom from the Crown's censors. Harris established one of the first American newspapers. These two men would promote each other's writings, one in New England and one in the coffee houses of London. Whitehall would react with authoritarian suppression. First, the London Gazette, which was almost always writing in defense of the king, would write, Coffee and Commonwealth cannot exist with church and king. The Gazette gave reason for Whitehall's next action and the passing of the King's Act, which attempted to target the coffee houses because of social coffee drinking is distracting tradesmen and others from their lawful callings. The Gazette would continue to support this act. Action must be taken of the defamation of the Majesty's government and the disturbance of the peace and quiet amongst the populace. The King's Act shall end the noxious nuisance, so to close them forever. The King's Act would meet with immediate popular rejection of this proclamation to the point of borderline violence in the streets from the patrons of the coffee houses. This verse, that was from the coffee house, was even said to reach the King's own ears. Will it take from the people the freedom of words? They teach them the sooner to fall on their swords. The Privy Council, too, found itself the target of the coffeehouse's wit. A common verse that was said in the streets compared Secretary Williamson and the Privy Councillor's intelligence to the King's Spaniels. His very dogs at council, bored, sit grave and wise as any lord. The Privy Council was determined to prosecute these sundry, false information, scandalous labels that stir up and dispose the minds of His Majesty's subjects to seditious sedition and rebellion. The first few public trials provoked hostility, open hostility from the populace at large, and it was directed at the king. Not willing to die by this sword, King Charles II pointed to his built-in scapegoats, those dastardly bureaucrats who overreached their privy council authority, and so the crown and king suspended the prosecution of those at the coffee houses. And so the coffee houses celebrated. Let them drink coffee and quietly groan. They did conquer the father and won't be slaves to the son. Thank you for listening to this episode of American Political History. If you want to support the show, please subscribe and leave a five-star rating and share this show with someone you think would enjoy listening. Thank you again, and until next time.